Okay, good morning, Crossroads. It's great to see you. Um, thanks so much for the warm welcome you've extended to me over the last week. I've really, really enjoyed being back. Um, and thanks to all of you who came out to the slots on Monday and Tuesday night, especially. We had a great time up in the upper room, and it was just a real thrill to be back in this church. Um, yeah, we have all kinds of special memories here and many, many ways in which we're really grateful to God for the way that he formed us as a family in this church. So it's lovely to be uh, back here and with you again. Um, yeah, we have quite a heavy message in front of us this morning, so I want to just be open with you about that. Um, so um, we're going to be diving into a passage of God's Word that doesn't necessarily seem obvious, like, obviously like it's uh, the, um, the beginning of an Advent series, but that's what it is. Um, it might seem maybe a week too early for the beginning of an Advent series. You have me to blame for this. I know Thanksgiving is still to come on Thursday, um, but Rod gave me the option to go to another prayer from Paul or um, to jump into what's going to come. And I've just been, I've been working in Luke's gospel for the longest time. I teach this in Oxford. Um, it's an amazing uh, part of God's word. And there's a passage here that's really spoken to me. I think it's in a very unexpected way, very apposite um, for this time of year. Um, and so we're going to go there. It's the parable of the tenants. Um, but before we open it, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much that um, at that first Christmas when Jesus came to be born into this world, uh, to grow and live and minister among us, um, that right from that whole uh, story, uh, there was a plan, a plan for a church, a plan for a multinational people in every nation, in every tribe and tongue and language, uh, hearing this message of mercy, um, seeing this amazing work of mercy that Christ accomplishes on the cross. And we pray that you would please help us as inheritors of that blessing, as recipients of it. Help us this morning just to get a sense of what a rare privilege that is, how ill-deserved it is. We pray that you would take us into your counsel, help us to understand your heart, help us to see the world with your eyes and ourselves in the light of your gospel. Work among us by your spirit, we pray, as we receive your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's stand to hear God's word. This is Luke chapter 20. We're going to start at verse 9. Luke chapter 20, verse 9. Jesus went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. They sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. But Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what's the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. 
the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew who had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. This is God's word to us this morning. You can be seated. Okay, so as I said, this doesn't sound like a very Christmassy text, does it? I don't see any shepherds or angels or wise men or any of that good stuff here. But I want to kind of try and open up for us that this is really all about Christmas. It's a great way for us to begin our preparations for Christmas because this text gives us an insight into God's preparations for Christmas. It's right there in verse 13, is it? Did you see that? The landowner who stands for God in our parable says, what shall I do? I will send my son. But I also want us to hold on to the feeling that maybe you had as I read this, that this isn't quite the preparation for Christmas that we would choose. It doesn't begin with that comforting sense of joy to the world that maybe comes to mind as we think about the Christmas story. It's a brutal portrait, isn't it, of the human situation, what a mess we're making of God's world. Jesus is going here for the why more than the what. The what is the baby in the manger. The what is the wise men and the shepherds. But the why, why did it even happen? That's what we've got going on here. And so I think it's a really, really good place for us to begin. Before we jump into the detail, though, I want to begin just by getting us oriented in Luke's gospel. Luke hasn't written this as like a telephone directory where we can go in and just pick the individual pieces out that we need. This is a narrative, okay? And so we need to know how the different sections fit together. It turns out that from the middle of chapter 19 all the way through to the end of chapter 21 is a section in Luke's mind. Um, it's a narrative. It's telling the story of Jesus's last week in Jerusalem before we get to the more familiar uh, pieces of the Last Supper and all of those things. It's heading towards the crucifixion. And um, it's pretty obvious that that's where things are going here if you just backtrack into chapter 19 and follow the, the story along. If you've got your Bible open in front of you, you'll see in chapter 19, we have Jesus riding into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. We have people calling out, Hosanna to the son of David. This is pretty obvious who Jesus thinks he is here. And the penny is dropping for everyone, right? He's the king. Then he marches up to the temple. He positions himself in his place that we call the court of the Gentiles. And there he drives out the traders and the money changers who've made that place their base, claiming the role of priests. Now, Jesus has been fairly studied about not being too in your face about these claims to kingship and priesthood so far in his story. He seems to have wanted to make room to get his teaching done, to get his disciple making done. But now it's as if the gloves are suddenly off. Now we can really see what he's about. And if you do this kind of thing in any culture, at any time, you're going to get yourself in a whole bunch of trouble. And so it shouldn't surprise us that at the beginning of chapter 20, that's exactly where it goes. We get a showdown between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. They confront him in the temple. And it's interesting, as you read this section of Luke's gospel, you see Jesus kind of make the temple his operational HQ for the week. It must have been really, really embarrassing for the Jewish authorities. Every day he shows up there, they keep trying to get him out and they don't seem to be able to manage it. This is the first attempt that they make. They come and ask him point blank, Tell us by what authority you're doing these things and who gave you this authority. And Jesus' answer sets the context for the parable that I just read. So we're going to just jump in here at chapter 20, verse 3, and I'll read you how Jesus replies. This kind of face-off moment. Jesus says, I'll also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? So these guys discussed it among themselves and they said, well, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, why didn't you believe him? 
But if we say of human origin, then the people will stone us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, oh, we don't actually know. <laughs> um, and Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. This is, at one level, this is just kind of great interview technique from Jesus, isn't it? You know, he gets an awkward question. It's, it's a bit worse than that. Actually, this is a loaded question. They're trying to get him to incriminate himself. They want him to say something that they can use as a basis to put him on trial. But Jesus shifts the focus. He, he responds to this awkward question with an awkward question of his own. He throws them back this thing about John the Baptist. But it, it's not just a masterful evasion. Jesus moves the conversation on to John because the same logic you need to figure out who John was and where he came from is the same logic that's going to tell you where Jesus, who Jesus is and where he came from if you follow it through. But that's not all I think Jesus wants to do here with these Jewish leaders. See, the gloves are right off now, aren't we? We had king and priest, just the way that he comes into the city. Now we have prophet with this comparison to John. That's a pretty big set of claims. Prophet, priest and king. You look back through your Old Testament, you find yourself looking for people like Moses who can carry all three of those hats. So who is this guy? And the answer to that question comes in the passage that we read. Jesus is going to make here a really dazzling set of connections back into the Old Testament. He's going to ground his mission and his identity in some of the deepest and richest seams of Israel's hope and trust in God. I count at least six, maybe even seven substantial references back into the Old Testament here. We're not going to have time to look at all of them in detail. But all of them do punch really hard. And it's when you see what he's doing here that you get to grips with it and actually see how this thing maybe is contextualizing and helping us see the way forward into Advent. That's where we're going to go. I'm not going to make any apology for the way that Jesus gets his business done here, but he's going to ask quite a lot of us. He's going to have us pinging backwards and forwards into some important parts of our Bibles. And we're going to try and trace his thought with him. Um, yeah, so that's uh, break, strap yourselves in and brace yourself for, for the way that Jesus gets his business done. So ask with me, first of all, what well-known Old Testament story is Jesus retelling here? That turns out to be a great question to ask when you study the New Testament. Jesus is always reenacting and retelling Old Testament stories. You remember the famous story of the 10 lepers just earlier on in Luke, the 10 guys who come, he heals them, only one comes back. That's a great story on its own, but it's even richer if you understand he's reenacting something that happens in 2 Kings 7 when we have this group of lepers who are waiting at the gates of the city of Samaria. Same thing with the parable of the prodigal son. Again, that's a potent story in and of itself, isn't it? But if you see Jesus reworking and retelling the story of Jacob and Esau, how Jacob goes off to a distant country and then the events that unfold when he returns, that thing suddenly punches a whole lot harder. Well, it's the same thing here in the parable of the tenants. Jesus is picking up a really well-known uh, narrative from the Old Testament. We call it the Song of the Vineyard. You can find it in Isaiah 5. There's a uh, kind of version of it also in Jeremiah. And I'm just going to read it to you, let it fall on you, um, and see what you think. So here we go, Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I've done for it? But when I look for good grapes, 
Why did it yield only bad? Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it will be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And then Isaiah summarises, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. The people of Judah, the vines he delighted in, he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. Does that sound familiar? The basic shape of this story is the same, isn't it? The vineyard owner is God. And God has created this place in which people can thrive. But he doesn't get the fruit that he anticipates, that he deserves after all the effort that he's put into it. And he responds with judgment. Same story. But always when Jesus takes an Old Testament text like this and retells it, he gives it his own particular twist. It's always a director's cut. That in itself should tell us something about who he is or who he thinks he is, shouldn't it? Who gets to do the director's cut? The director. So in Isaiah 5, we have a story about Israel specifically, but in Luke 20, things are a bit more complicated and interesting, aren't they? The tenets in the story are the Jewish authorities standing in front of him, trying to make him incriminate himself. But the vineyard is what? It's the kingdom over which they presume to preside. It's the kingdom of God. It's not just the land. It's not just a physical place. It's God's cause. It's God's interest in the world. And at the end of the story, it's that that God's going to tear out of their hands and give to others. So immediately then, can you see that Jesus is kind of blowing out the boundaries of this Isaiah text that he's taken? The issue here is not just about some comparatively small piece of real estate at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. The issue here is the very heart of what God is going for in his world and who we are in it. God is building a kingdom where his writ runs, where his rule is acknowledged, where his presence is cherished and sought, where his character is mirrored and modelled, where his heart to bless the nations is cultivated. You can see that's what Jesus is going for when he throws the money changers out of the temple, can't you? The place they've occupied, the court of the Gentiles, that's supposed to be the place where the nations get to see who this gracious God really is. It's not supposed to be a place where they're fleeced of their money and sent packing without any opportunity to actually worship him. So Isaiah 5 might be a lesson for Israel, but Luke 20 is a lesson for the entire world that we live in and for us as its inhabitants too. This story asserts God's universal ownership. Everything we consider ours was his first and it still is his. Do you know that? Our world is shouting to us that that's not true. It's trying to tell us that we are the possessors and the creators maybe even of every good thing that we have. But the Bible wants to say that's totally wrong. We are tenants in God's world. And the way we treat it matters for that reason, not just because it's in our interests. This passage tells us that the productivity of this world is his as well. It's his idea, it's his to sustain. So when we plant a seed and raise a tree, when we plant an education and raise a career, that doesn't just happen because it just happens. It happens because God's made the world that way. 
and God's sustaining the world that way, moment by moment. God dug the plot, God planted the vine, he's sustaining it. It's his hand that makes it grow. So as we watch Jesus standing here in the temple, just right out of the gates, I hope we can feel the, like the visceral wrongness of what's happening here. This temple is devoted to the God of Israel. And now, amazingly, bizarrely, the God of Israel in human form is standing in the temple. And there are people trying to throw him out, trying to trip him up, trying to kick him out of the place that's made for his worship. But it's not just that, is it? This parable also lands disturbingly on us. What about the temple of my life? What about the temple of my world? And where did I get that confidence that they do belong to me? The way Jesus tells this story, it isn't just the temple that's his by right. It's everything. Everything we will ever touch or see. Every snowfall, every meal, every breath, conceived by him, sustained by him, period. Feel your pulse for a minute. What's making those precious heartbeats beat? The Bible says this is God's vineyard and he expects a share of the crop. So the way that Jesus deals with this passage from Isaiah 5, this is a really big deal. It's a story about the whole world God has made and us as inhabitants in it. But that's not the only twist that Jesus is going to twist into this narrative. Did you notice in Isaiah's version, it's kind of interesting, is that all God has to do is look and he can see immediately what's going on. That's totally true. But the way Jesus tells the story, he tells us about God sending servants to come and claim the fruit of the vineyard that he deserves, and in the end, sending his son. And that twist is going to introduce something really interesting to this, and this is going to give us our runway into Advent. So read carefully with me the landowner's response when these servants return. He sends them off, they go to the tenants looking for the fruit. The tenants treat them awfully and kick them out. They stumble back, kind of injured and bleeding, back to the place from which they were come. And the landowner says, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him. Now, I don't know about you, but without admitting it to myself, I think I've always found that verse a bit disconcerting. And probably as a result of that, I've kind of not, not probed it. This is my temptation. I don't know whether you're the same when you come to a passage in the Bible that is slightly like, oh, I wish that wasn't there. It's easy to just kind of go around it rather than go through it. Sometimes going through it is the right way to actually get the gold. What's the problem here? Why do we want to veer? It's because the landowner has this seemingly cavalier attitude to the well-being of his son, doesn't he? Perhaps they will respect him. That seems like a bit of a slender thread on which to risk the life of his only child, right? Doesn't he see what we can all see so clearly that these tenants are just completely off the chain? Like these guys have got no sense of moral accountability. They will do whatever they want and not feel bad about it. But the problem with all of this is that we're looking at it as if we were the landowner, aren't we? And God wants to kind of show us this a different way. And the way that he's going to do that is he packages this up with some Old Testament references. And we need to go there in order to see it from his side of the conversation. Now, we might say, Old Testament references here, well, I didn't see them. This is definitely a blink or you'll miss it moment from Jesus. But I want to give us the tools here to see what's going on, because when we get it, I think it's going to really, really help us. So flip back with me if you've got your Bible open to Luke chapter 3. We're going to jump in here at 
a very important moment in Jesus' story, his baptism, and this will be very familiar to you all. This is rich. If we started peeling back the layers here, we'd still be here doing this this time next, next week. I think it would be encouraging if we did, but we're not going to go there. Um, there's a voice that speaks from heaven, isn't there, in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. As Jesus comes up out of the water after he's baptised, we hear this amazing statement. Many of us will know the quote. It goes like this. You are my son, with whom I love, whom I love with you I am well pleased. Now, we might not realise this, but this isn't just a super encouraging thing for the son to hear the father say as he gets ready for his life in ministry. It is that, but it's a lot more than that. This is a collage of quotes from super well-known moments in the Old Testament that are all being stitched together in order to make a much bigger point. What Luke wants us to do, what Jesus wants us to do, is to kind of be carried back in our minds to these familiar places from which they come or they would have been familiar to the audience that might sound a bit far-fetched to you well let me try and show you how this works and forgive me if you've heard this illustration before but I still think it's a good one suppose I drop a micro quote from quasi popular culture into my sermon right now I'm not cool enough to know what really would be the popular reference but suppose I say uh, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi you're my only hope okay <laughs> I'm hoping that several of you at least are old enough um, to, to to clock what's going on there um, but I hope also that you don't just think to yourself, oh yeah, that's Star Wars episode four. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I hope that it's actually going to do a little bit more to you than that. You see that quote, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope, transports us back to several really key moments in that film. It might take you to the very first time that it appears. This is Luke Skywalker in his little workshop. He's tinkering around with these droids he's just bought and then boom, suddenly this message appears. There's this young woman asking for help. The next time it happens... We're in Ben Kenobi's kind of hermit-like lodging up on the top of some hillside somewhere. And Ben Kenobi's beginning to open up things about Luke's past that he has no idea about. That quote, those words then carry with them the sense of expectation that's kind of pregnant in those scenes, doesn't it? A sense of what's about to happen, maybe the gravity of it, about what's about to happen to his home and how he's about to lose it. The relationship maybe between Luke and the woman in the message. It might come with snatches of music, excitement, sorrow, but it's all there just in that tiny fragment, isn't it? If you just say those words, suddenly, boom, like the whole thing is there in front of you. Well, the same thing is true for fragments of the Old Testament for Jewish people. It was then, it is now. The book, the Hebrew Bible, is the bedrock of Jewish culture. This is the text that these people that Jesus was speaking to heard recited from their mother's knees. This is the basis of their literacy. Mature Jews would have large parts of this text down pat. If you throw down important parts of the story, like this is my son or my son whom I love, they wouldn't just have fallen flat. Everybody would have known what this is. Rod taught me this. And it's been a really powerful uh, insight for me in my own study of the Bible and teaching ever since. If we want to understand what's going on with Old Testament being used in the New, we've got to drill back into the context and try and see what these passages meant. So think about this voice from heaven when Jesus is baptised. You are my son. That's a quote from one of the most important Psalms in the Bible, Psalm 2. It's important because it introduces the characters of the Psalm and this part of this Psalm introduces the most important character of them all, the Messiah, God's long-expected king, and here's how it goes, starting at verse 7 of Psalm 2. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me 
and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Did you get that? That's what's happening at the baptism. The Father isn't just sending Jesus kind of hallmarks best wishes on your baptism day. He's declaring Jesus' identity as the universal king with authority to rule and to judge. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. That's the thought that that voice is triggering. That God has always told us that he's the God of the whole world, that one day he will hold the whole world to account. And now here's the announcement of the how and the who. Jesus is how and Jesus is who. But that's not the only thing the voice says, is it, when Jesus is baptised? Next thing is this, you are my son whom I love. Anybody know where that comes from? That's Genesis 22. The sacrifice of Isaac. Then God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there. As a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. You guys are going to get the chance to explore that passage in some detail next week, I think. And we have a devotional to give away at the end of the service, which will help you get prepared for that sermon and every week of this series as we go through Advent. But just for now, just clock this astonishing combination of ideas that this voice from heaven is giving us here at Jesus' baptism. Jesus is the king. You are my son, Psalm 2. Jesus is the sacrifice whom I love. Genesis 22. Jesus is the ruler of the nation, Psalm 2. Jesus is the son carrying the word on his back up the slopes of Mount Moriah, Genesis 22. So right here at his baptism, those amazing and seemingly dissonant ideas are woven together. This is something I don't think any Jew in the period ever saw coming. These things are well-known threads of the Old Testament, but the idea that they might be fulfilled in the same person is just completely off the charts. But here it is, they're facets of the same whole. The king is the sacrifice. The Lord is the lamb. That's what Jesus came to do. That's huge. But maybe you need persuading still. So let's jump forward to Luke 9. And we come to another really pivotal moment. This is Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus is setting his course for his exodus here. This is his own great deliverance that he's been commissioned to accomplish. Once again, we get a voice from heaven and it's kind of similar. In verse 35 of Luke 9, the voice says, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Anybody want to help me work out what's going on there? This is my son is Psalm 2 again, right? And it's not just a throwaway encouragement here either. This isn't kind of, hey, everybody, this is my son. What a great guy. No, this is deliberately carrying us back to that messianic hope, that long-awaited universal ruler breaking the nations with a rod of iron. But it's followed up again with another micro quote, this is my son whom I have chosen. And if you go look at that later in the week, that's the introduction to the servant songs from Isaiah, Isaiah 42 as Isaiah winds up to tell us this incredible story of the suffering servant, the one who'll be despised and rejected and killed to bear his people's guilt. So can you see how this works? 
Can you see how these great announcements are kind of fusing together, these ex expectations, helping us see what kind of king this Jesus is really going to be? Okay, that was the hard work. So now let's bring it back to our parable. Listen as I read that key verse again, Luke 20, verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. If this was just standing on its own, without the baptism and the transfiguration in the wings, maybe we would just pass right over this. But as soon as you've read it, with those references coming through Luke's gospel, this can only be one thing. This is Psalm 2 and Genesis 22 all over again. Once you spotted that connection, I don't think you'll ever read this, this um, parable in the same way. So let me read it you, you now. Let's put the pieces together. So I'm going to have Psalm 2 up on the screen. I'm going to read it for you and read it with the parable of the tenants in your mind and see how Jesus is riffing these two things together. Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's break up their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Doesn't that jump off the page now? Can you see what Jesus is doing, how he's bringing this psalm to life in this story? The tenants are the nations conspiring and rising up against the Lord's anointed. And the Lord isn't just sending his son kind of naively hoping that everything's going to be okay. The Lord is sending his son fully aware of the hostility of humanity and knowing that if we follow through with it, whatever that entails for his son, the son will still emerge as the victor and personally receive our submission. The connections are everywhere here in this parable. Did you see we have tenants who think they can kill the son and claim his inheritance? But if you read the psalm, inheritance is a big deal. And the nations are the son's inheritance. And killing him is just going to be one step along the journey to laying that inheritance down at his feet. In the parable, we have tenants who have lost their minds. It's such a shocking, accurate depiction of the human condition, isn't it? They think that by killing the son, they will get the estate. Seriously, in what world is that going to happen? It's just completely nuts, isn't it? But the psalm just goes right there. It says, therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. So do you see how Jesus is brilliantly weaving these threads together to explain what's happening in front of him? You know, no doubt these Jewish leaders were just, they're kind of desperate to get rid of him. He's such an embarrassment. Like all of these stories of miracles and things are just so undermining of their structures. They just want to 
flick him away, crush the dissenting voice and be done. But as soon as we've read this parable in the light of Jesus' Old Testament connections, our eyes are open to what I think is a breathtakingly awful reality. This guy, this itinerant preacher from Galilee, this guy who's just ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, this guy who's just thrown the traders out of the temple and who's about to be handed over to the Romans, it's that guy. He's the Messiah. He's the one who's destined to rule. He's the one the Bible tells us to kiss lest the Father wipe us off the face of the earth. How can I explain this? I asked the earlier congregation. We have a TV show in, in England called Back to the Floor. Um, it's one of these things where the, the boss of the company kind of dresses up as an employee and goes and kind of, you know, lives among their employees for a day to see how it goes. And there's that, always the inevitable moment where they're standing kind of sharing a coffee and the conversation comes around to what an awful company this is to work in and what a terrible person the boss is. And, you know, and you're just sitting there thinking, ooh, <laughs> you know, have you got no idea who you're talking to? But it's that on steroids here, isn't it? The teachers ask Jesus where his authority comes from. I don't think they're expecting his answer. You are my son whom I love. Jesus is that guy. Think about this with me, because this is the necessary background for the Christmas story. We looked at Isaiah 5 at the beginning of this sermon and we saw how broad that goes. We're tenants in this world. What we have isn't ours. We have a duty of thankfulness, a duty of fruitfulness. Our whole idea of ourselves is kind of like the possessors of everything that we have, free to do whatever we want, free just to kind of say, you know, no one tells me what to do. It's just garbage, isn't it? In the light of the Bible, I'm sorry to say that, but it's sub-Christian nonsense. But now think about the one with whom we have to do. Do we have any concept of who he is? Do we have any concept of whom we're resisting when we resist him? Have we got any sense of who we're depriving of his rights? This is the son of God. This is the maker of the universe. What are we thinking? Are we really going to live our lives erecting our little kingdoms here, our careers, our families, our achievements, waving our little fists at him, even as he sustains the existence of every atom in our bodies moment by moment? That's just insanity, isn't it? And it's his coming that we wait for and that we're going to celebrate at Advent. The coming that brought him here to see it for himself. So we wait now with nowhere to hide. He knows what the vineyard looks like because he's been here. He's seen it. He has first-hand experience. That's not good, is it? We should be nervous. It's great to come to Advent with excitement, but I also want to just set this in context. Think about who he is. But before we get to that fear that maybe is the natural reaction, the passage that we've got actually kind of drops into shock and confusion. I wonder whether you saw that. The idea that God is sending his son, I think it hits home with this audience, but it makes a complete nonsense of the way that Jesus tells his own story. Because the way that Jesus does this, the tenant's plan succeeds. They do kill the son. 
And that just must be wrong, mustn't it? If you've seen the link back into Psalm 2 and you know who this person is, that can't be the way this ends. So we get the big reaction in verse 16 from these people. Like, back up there a minute. God forbid. That can't be what happens. Despite the glimpse that Jesus has given them of Genesis 22, the penny hasn't dropped. The idea that God might actually be planning to sacrifice himself in order to help us. No, no, they can't see that. So in this last part of the passage, Jesus is going to spell that right out. And he's going to use another amazing Old Testament text to get us there, this time Psalm 118. And that's where that famous quote comes from. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So we're almost there now. Psalm 118. This is a war story. If you go back and read it, you'll see this. We have a soldier recounting his experiences on the battlefield. And he's telling us a story about a moment where he was completely alone, isolated, surrounded, the enemy all around him. Looks like he's just about to be overrun and killed. And then somehow, in this moment of crisis, he calls out to God. We don't know how, but God steps in and he's delivered. And so Psalm 118 is like the thanks that he brings for this amazing deliverance. But it's one of those weird kind of classic psalm moments where as he tells the story, it's hard for it to kind of stay bounded within that uh, account. It, it wants to be bigger than that. The psalmist says things that just don't seem to quite stay within that set of constraints. So he says stuff like, the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. That's kingly language. That's not just kind of an individual soldier doing his thing. And as we read the psalm and you hold it next to Jesus' own experience, you start to think, oh my goodness, these two things are clearly connected. So let me read you some bits of it. We'll jump in here at Psalm 118, verse 13. Again, it'll be on the screen. So here's our soldier speaking. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defence. He's become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things the Lord's right hand is lifted high the Lord's right hand has done mighty things I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done the Lord has chastened me severely but he's not given me over to death open for me the gates of the righteous I will enter and give thanks to the Lord this is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter I will give you thanks for you answer me you've become my salvation the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvellous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. He's made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Now, this is a complicated passage. Go read it later in the week if you want to. But let me just draw out a few really striking points. The first is just the order of events, like where Jesus drops this into what he's saying here. Jesus has told his parable by the time we get to this, and the punchline has already landed. The landowner sends the son, the son is killed by the tenants, the tenants are killed by the landowner. Boom. So what in the world is Jesus doing now, taking one of the most well-known passages in the Hebrew Bible and picking up its expectation for a very different ending? 
The words of the psalm are unambiguous, aren't they? That it doesn't end in disaster for this soldier. Quite the, quite the contrary. The Lord is my strength and my defence, he says. He's become my salvation. I will not die, but live. And will proclaim what the Lord has done. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Do you see, Jesus is anticipating a future beyond the tenant's action against him. Genesis 22 taught us to anticipate self-sacrifice. Psalm 118 teaches us to anticipate resurrection. And look at the context in which this psalm is set. This soldier, this warrior, returns from his close encounter with death to lead the people in thanks and worship. We even get a few little glimpses of what that would have looked like in practice. So here in the psalm, it says, open for me the gates of the righteous and I'll enter and give thanks to the Lord. Here's this party of celebrating people coming in to the city, up to the temple. And we get this sense that there's also a warm reception for them as they arrive. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. And where is all this procession going? It's going up to God's presence to make a sacrifice with bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar, it says. So this isn't a picture of the scorched earth that's left behind after the landowner avenges the son's death. This is a picture of the son's future life. This is a picture of victory on the other side of the tenant's attempts to seize the inheritance. And it's a victory that brings a whole host of people with him and a sacrifice to make on their behalf This is what that perhaps of verse 13 is anticipating. The father isn't blindsided by the tenant's wicked treatment of the son. Quite the reverse. Father and son chose it. They chose it as the means, not only by which they would repossess the vineyard, but by which they would show what it is they're all about. That when they're resisted, rejected, spat at, when their gifts are treated with contempt, the God who exists returns to that with love and mercy and with supreme self-sacrifice in the end to buy his own enemies out of the wreckage they have made and set the world to rights. That's the Christian gospel. So what is all this telling us as we set our compasses for Christmas? This passage tells us why Christmas happened in the first place. It isn't because God just loves tinsel. It isn't even for that heartrendingly beautiful image of God entrusting himself to a human family, entering into our world as one of us, seeing it with his eyes, reassuring us even in the depths of our suffering and at the heights of our joy that he gets it. It is all that. But at its heart, It's the owner of the vineyard's response to his tenants. And I wonder if that's a helpful thing for us just to sit on as we head into this Christmas season. When we read about the heavenly host appearing in the skies above Bethlehem, I think we're just a bit too familiar with the story there to feel the fear that that image should surely evoke. Heavenly host means army. Before reading it by, sorry, if we read it against this parable, I think we can see that incident more truly, can't we? Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son. But if the passage stopped there with a citation from Psalm 2, Christmas would have looked very different. 
and that angelic army would have marched forward and rid the earth of us. But bless God, it doesn't stop there. And we can head into Advent treasuring the words that change our destiny. What shall I do, says the Father? I will send my son whom I love. Not just the king, but the sacrifice. Not just the Lord, but the lamb. Not coming to kill, but to be killed. And bring everyone who trusts him in through the gates of the righteous with bows in hand up to the horns of the altar. How does Jesus land all this? Well, it shouldn't surprise us that he goes back to the Old Testament. Two last times. We'll just do this very briefly. He wants us to feel the weight of the reality now that we're still living in this story. That this is not done. That that angelic army is still poised at the Father's command, ready to cleanse the vineyard of the mess that we have made of it. Everyone who falls on that stone, says Jesus, will be broken in pieces and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. He's jumping back into Isaiah here, Isaiah chapter 8, and he's taking us to a moment in Israel's history. I'm sure um, many of you will know this. Isaiah writes at a time when Israel is about to be wiped off the map. Isaiah is looking out from the walls of Jerusalem and the Assyrians are coming. The Assyrians have already uh, completely annihilated their northern neighbour, the kingdom of Israel. They're coming village by village, taking is Judah's territory and moving towards the walls of Jerusalem. And at that moment, God says to him, say this, say, it's not actually them you should fear, it's me. God says, I've summoned the Assyrians and if I will it, I can make them evaporate. Even when every contradictory indication applies, God is still the one who rules this world. God is the one who made it. God is the one who sustains it. As we sung, if God is for us, Who can be against us? Nothing can stand against us if he's taken us as his own. But the sting in the tail here, this is where Jesus wants to go, is that the reverse is also true. We want to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's right. But Jesus also wants us to hear, if we're against him, it doesn't matter who is for us. If we're tenants and we continue to shake our fists at him, if we fall on that stone, we'll be broken. And Jesus ends the story with another snapshot of that Old Testament inheritance. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. This is the book of Daniel now. You remember the, the, uh, the statue with all of its layers representing the empires of the world, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. And there into that picture comes this stone that smashes it all to pieces. Again, it's a vision of Jesus. In the end, it's him who's destined to reclaim the rule of his vineyard. He holds out astonishing mercy to us. The baby in the manger points to the saviour on the cross. But Jesus wants us to be aware as we head into this season in our year. Look, Christmas episode one was amazing, but it will be superseded by Christmas episode two. The angels won't just stand back watching. We need to kiss the sun. We need to embrace the lamb because the bottom line is this is deadly serious. There's no way around it. Jesus crossed all worlds to deliver us from the fate we deserve. He endured our hell so that we could inherit his heaven, but we need to receive him. So let's do that this Christmas time. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Heavenly Fathers, we head back into worship now. We just want to acknowledge...
the weight of what we've heard um, and confess our, the facile way that we sometimes deal with the Christmas story. It's wonderful to be with family and friends. We bless you for those amazing uh, good gifts that you've given us. But we do pray that you would help us still to just carve out some time in our, in our days. Sometimes we look forward to what these, uh, this time of year anticipates. Help us remember it really didn't have to be like this. There's no inevitability in terms of how great we are or how lovable we are that the God who made us would move towards us this way. But it's astonishing, it's jaw-dropping that the King who has the right to rule will come and wash our feet, that he will come and give his life, that we could be made his children. So help us to just grab hold of that with both hands. Help us to confess our um, neglect of these great things. And we pray will you draw us near and help us and bless us as we seek to reach out to our neighbours with this good news. In Jesus' name.